you're listening to the Sojourn Montrose Sermon Podcast. To get connected at Sojourn Montrose, visit our website, sojournmontrose.org. I'm the pastors here at Sojourn Montrose. My joy to welcome you to our gathering this Sunday. And I just want to reiterate the welcome that Cole gave us just right at the beginning, which was both a welcome and an invitation to connect with our church. Sojourn Montrose gathers like this every Sunday. But during the week, we're gathering in smaller groups that we call neighborhood parishes to share a meal and uh, walk together as we follow Jesus. So we'd love to invite you into that. The easiest next step for you is to fill out that Connect card at one of these tables or to visit the map in the hallway where some of our staff will meet you and kind of talk to you about when and where those parishes are gathering throughout the week. Um, And as you heard, this Sunday we continue our sermon series walking um, and kind of tracing the life of Abraham. Right now, at this part of the narrative, he's still named Abram, so he, he has not been given a new name by God, the name Abraham, but we know Abraham, his father Abraham, and he becomes um, the patriarch or the father of the nation of Israel, which we know is now the church, the people of God. Um, at this point in the story, God has promised that Abram would be a great nation. He's promised that Abram would inhabit a land of promise. And he's promised that Abram would be blessed in order to, in turn, bless the nations. Yet over the last few weeks, we've seen Abram go down into Egypt and get caught in a half lie with, uh, regarding his wife to Pharaoh. And we've seen Abram come back from Egypt and end up quarreling with his nephew named Lot. And they end up separating Uh, Lot settles near this land and and this city called Sodom, which we are told is this famously wicked city. This morning, we have some regional developments and some personal developments that happen in the narrative of Abram and his life. And and when I say regional developments, it sounds pretty boring, but... um, It's actually a fairly epic narrative that I skipped uh, having Kelly read really out of grace to her because it's it's like nine names that are hard to pronounce and nine regions that are hard to pronounce. So what happens is as you're reading your Bible and you get to chapter 14, you get lost in the the mispronunciation of the names and we kind of miss the narrative of what's going on. So I'm going to skip it and just kind of give you the too long didn't read digest of what is happening in chapter 14 verses 1 through 11. But let me pray first, and then we'll, we'll look at this together. Lord, we pray that you would be um, speaking through your word this morning. I know many of us come uh, from various and wildly different mornings or weekends, whether we are feeling um, downcast or sorrowful or we're feeling energized and excited or anywhere on the spectrum between, um, between those two realities. Lord, I pray that you would speak to us by your word, that we would, um, that, that I might, you, you, though I am imperfect and, and greatly so, declare your goodness and your grace and your truth to all who would hear And ultimately, Lord, we invite you to speak to us by your Holy Spirit to apply your word to our lives um, and help us as you are a helper. Lord, we love you, we trust you, and we are anxious to hear from you. In your name we pray, amen. All right, so again, chapter 14 begins with this regional conflict. Um, Scholars actually, especially non-Christian scholars, 
kind of debate this first part of chapter 14 because it's just, it's a pause in the story of Abram and then it's this historical narrative that they believe might be lifted from some other historical writing, but they've never found that historical writing and they have verified the names and locations of these kings. So they kind of think this is oddly out of place in the Abram narrative, but I think we'll see this morning, and what I would argue is that this is the word of God recording actual history, and the history has a purpose. It's going to show us what the region was like, but it's also, uh, we'll see how Lot gets swept up and Abram gets swept up in this regional conflict narrative. And so here's the scenario without butchering a bunch of names. Um, Multiple kings are in the region of the Middle East at this point that we know as the modern-day Middle East. And these kings don't rule vast lands. Instead, they rule city-states. So there's all these little cities throughout the region that are ruled by local kings. And we learn that five of these kings had relative peace for 12 years because they had accepted being vassal states or being ruled over by this other king, Kedolaomer. Kedolaomer is his name. I'm saying that for me, not for you. Um, so Kedolaomer uh, is the, the ruling king, but we learn after 12 years of this relatively peaceful rule, um, these five kings say, we don't want to be ruled over by Kedolaomer anymore. We're going to rebel. We're going to start a rebellion. We're going to unite, and we're going to throw off the shackles of tyranny that Kedolaomer has forced on this land, taking our resources and our people. And so they do. They start this rebellion, but Kedolaomer is not happy about the rebellion, as most kings are not uh, within their kingdom. And so he brings three other kings as allies with him down into the region. And as he descends into this region from the north to the south, Kedolaomer takes cities, land, and trade routes as he comes. So not only is he coming to squash a rebellion, he's also coming to increase his kingdom. So Kedolaomer descends, and he's very successful. He's taking cities that we know aren't part of the conflict. He's taking trade routes that we know aren't part of the conflict. And what he does is he ends up surrounding these five kings so they are alone. There's no help coming for the five kings of the region in the rebellion. So they're alone. They have nobody to turn to. They have no other kingdoms to invite in. They're surrounded. And all the way, Kedolaomer and his, four, or his three other kings, rather, have collected more goods, more resources, more soldiers, more slaves... And now they circle the five kings. We learn that they are slaughtered. A slaughter takes place. The rebellion is squashed. The, squ the slaughter is so horrible that the rebels are retreating through what your Bible probably calls bitumen pits, which are asphalt pits, big pits of tar, hot and black tar. And um, the Hebrew says they fell in, but that Hebrew can be either interpreted as fell in or threw themselves in. And based on the context, I think it's probably the latter, that as these kings come and slaughter the retreating armies, we learn that two kings throw themselves into the pit instead of being captured and tortured by the kings coming. So we learn that um, these kings would rather take their own lives than be conquered. So the enemy not only stops the rebellion... The enemy pillages and plunders the region, as we've already learned, but they pillage and plunder the five kingdoms of the conquered kings. And that's when we learn that Abram's Lot, or Abram's nephew Lot, the Bible now calls him a brother, to emphasize uh, the kinship that Abram and Lot have. So Abram's brother, Lot, is captured. 
And when we last heard about Lot, he had pitched his tent right outside of the wicked city Sodom. But now we learn he lives inside the city walls. So Lot has moved from near the city of wickedness to inside the city of wickedness. And in this ancient and epic battle, um, we learn that Lot is swept up as a prisoner of the king Kedorlaomer. This battle, to me, feels like something Tolkien might write. Nine kings, a failed rebellion, an invading army that plunders and captures. And then we feel like the width of the epic narrative in Genesis zeroes in quickly on Lot, who's captured, and Abram, who gets word of his brother, his nephew's captive captivity. Word, we learn, reaches Abram, right? One man escapes the battle and reaches Abram, where Abram is experiencing peace and wealth, and he has good allies and a good house. He's experiencing relative blessing, but he learns that his brother, his kin, Lot, is gone and taken. So that's the epic context of what we will now see Uh, sets the stage for Abram's response. How will Abram respond? Remember, at the end of chapter 13, Abram and Lot had separated. They had been quarreling. Abram is Lot's uncle, and he doesn't really owe him that much. It's not like Lot is Abram's son or real brother or father. It's his nephew. And so I would be tempted, I think, to say, you know what, Lot? You chose to quarrel with me, and you chose to go that way, and you chose to live near the wicked city. And a matter of fact, you chose to live in the wicked city. And so, and you kind of made your bed. You should lie in it. I, I might be tempted to say that, but Abram does not do that. Instead, Abram immediately rises and rallies the troops. He leverages all of his allies, and he goes and gets his brother. And really... Um, What we see is a narrative of redemption, and when we see a narrative of redemption in the Bible, we should think that that will be pointing us to the redemption that we have in Christ. Let's read uh, chapter 14. We'll start in verse 13 and see what happens. It says this, Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre the Amorite, brother of Eskel and of Aner, these were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsman Lot had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan, which is very far away. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. And then he brought back all the possessions of the five kingdoms, and he also brought back his kinsmen, Lot, and all of Lot's possessions, and he also brought back the women and children who were enslaved. We learn that um, Abram has made an oath with these other leaders to be allies to him. He rallies them and their household, and we learn that Abram takes all the men born in his house as well. And remember, Abram is no king. He doesn't rule over a city-state, but he is certainly the patriarch and leader of a large camp. These 318 men that he brings are soldiers born in his house, which indicates that there are many more older men and women and children that are part of the house of Abram. But Abram himself, remember, is childless, yet he does act as a father to these men. The number 318 is a very precise number. Um, When the Bible uses very precise numbers, they generally mean something. Um, Hebrew scholars think this number corresponds uh, with Eliezer, which if the numbers of the Hebrew letters, it corresponds exactly with the name Eliezer. Eliezer, you'll meet in the next chapter, but he is the chief leader of the sons of Abram born in the house of Abram, not 
not genetically, but all the men born in the house of Abram have a leader, and his name's Eliezer. And the, the number of Eliezer's name is 318. And so we're, we're supposed to draw our eyes towards the fact that if Abram dies, his heir is Eliezer. There is no child. And Eliezer is the figurehead for the men born, the servants born in the house of Abram. Thus, the 318 are his sons, Abram's adopted sons, born in his house under his authority, dependent on Abram to an extent to be their father, and they rally to him when he calls. But, but remember, Abram has no offspring. So Abram's clan and Abram's allies go in the night, we learn, through the cover of darkness. They surround the occupying force, and they attack and defeat the forces, and the forces retreat. And as they retreat, Abram doesn't need to pursue them, but he pursues them a very far distance to make sure that they don't come back. And as they do, Abram brings restoration. He restores cities and restores kings, and they bring back all the possessions, all the women, all the children, and they got Lot too. And so... It's worth pausing here simply for a moment to make a connection that the Bible is giving us a story of rescue and redemption and restoration. And therefore, when the Bible does that, it's pointing us to Jesus. The rescue points us to God in Christ coming to rescue us, us who have been taken captive by sin and death and darkness in the world. The reality here is that currently there is a battle raging, right? And many of us Uh, were or are taken captive by the battle between death and life, between wickedness and righteousness, between good and evil, the battle between God and Satan. But God came as a man in order to battle. Christ's battle is the cross. He takes on sin and death, and it's a way, it's a strategy that the enemy could not have predicted, that God would come as man and die and pay the penalty for sin and death. In so doing, On the cross, God in Christ defeats sin and death and thereby creates a way for his people to be reconciled to God and saved. And that's why when Jesus rises from the dead, which we we celebrate on Easter, we say he rose in victory. He rose in victory. A battle was won. A death blow was dealt to Satan and the king ascends to a new throne. Jesus has come and chased after us. He has found us. He has redeemed us. He has defeated our enemies, namely death. We are a lot like Lot in this story. We camp too close to wickedness, and sometimes it turns out we move right in. We fall deep into sin, but God in Christ rescues us. He calls us brother. He redeems us. He restores us. The Bible wants us to start getting used to this narrative when this is happening with Abram. And the battle and Abram rescuing Lot here, these things really happened. They really happened, and they really point us to the salvation we need in Christ. Christ is our kinsman redeemer who has named us his people, his brothers, his sisters, his family, and he comes and gets us. But at the surface level, so that's, that's what's happening at the, the, met, the redemption arc of the Bible level. That's the story of, of God's people and redemption. But at the surface level, we're simultaneously being told about the preparation that Abram is going, for, going through. Abram is being prepared and formed into a man whom God will use to create a people. Abram is being formed into a man that God will use for his glory, that God will establish a people through, that God will give land to and lineage to, that God will bless and in turn charge to bless the world. Today, the church is the lineage of Abram. We are the 
the result and offspring of Abraham. And for the rest of our time this morning, we're going to look at verses 17 through 24, where Abram is being invited by God to choose between wickedness and righteousness. And there's a ton of theology packed into the narrative of Melchizedek, but uh, we, we actually went through the book of Hebrews last, last fall, and so I, I mentioned that to say the book of Hebrews chapter 7 gives extended treatment to who Melchizedek is and why he's significant in the life of Jesus, namely that Jesus is a priest, a great high priest in the order of Melchizedek. So we've, we've kind of done that and unpacked that at least recently. So I'm not going to emphasize that aspect, which is a major aspect and a huge emphasis of this text. Instead, I want us to look at what's going on with Abram, what he's being invited into. So let's read the passage together with a, with a focus on Abram and what's going on with him. This is what it says. After his return, Abram's return from the defeat of Ketelaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, which is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, came out with bread and wine. He was a priest of God most high, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and possessor of earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram, in response, gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Well, give me the people, but you take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hands to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread, which means very small, or a sandal strap, very wide, a thread or a sandal strap of what is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eskel, and Mamre, the allies, take their share. So, okay, what's going on here? First, the king of Sodom comes out and meets Abram. We're in the king's valley, so this is where the kings were um, discussing what, what should happen, what should be the result of this battle. And we learned just a moment ago, uh, earlier in the chapter, that one of the, the old king of Sodom had thrown himself or fell into a tar pit. So this must be a new king of Sodom because the old king is dead. And so this new king comes into the king's valley, and there Abram meets him and this new king that we haven't heard of in the Bible to this point and will never hear of narratively again until Psalms mention him and the author of Hebrews unpacks who he is. But narratively, Melchizedek never comes back. So this new third king is here, and he's a priest. And his name is Melchizedek, which is a Canaanite name. And remember, Canaan is the land that God just showed Abram, this will be the promised land for you. This is the land that I will give you. And his name in Canaanite means king of righteousness. And then we're told the city-state that Melchizedek is over is the city of Salem, which becomes Jerusalem. It becomes the capital of the land that is the promised land of God's people in the Old Testament. And so this is a very significant moment for Abram. Remember, we, we also have just read last week about how Sodom is this wicked city that all the men in Sodom are corrupt and wicked. So the kings in the valley are this, the king of righteousness, Melchizedek, and the king of Sodom, or the king of wickedness, is another way to think about it. And then there's Abram in the middle. And both the kings have something to say and offer Abram, but they're very different 
things. And what we're going to find out is Abram is faced with two paths. He's faced with a path of righteousness and a path of wickedness. Remember, Melchizedek is, is priest of Yahweh. He's a priest and king and worshiper of the same God that Abram has accepted promises from and is following and is devoted to and believes in and has faith in. And the priest king brings bread and wine and he blesses Abram in the name of and with the authority of Yahweh, the God most high, who owns all things, Melchizedek is quick to remind us. Melchizedek in blessing Abram reminds us and reminds Abram that the victory that Abram just experienced belongs to God. The glory for that, the onus that Abram has is that that victory was a result of God's work, not Abram's. We learn that Abram, in response to this reminder and blessing, gives a tenth of everything, indicating that Abram accepts the blessing of God from this priest. And in gratitude and devotion to God, he gives back. Melchizedek honors and blesses Abram. Alternatively, the king of Sodom or the king of wickedness dishonors Abram. And this is what he says, I'll take the people, you can have the stuff. I'll take the people, you can have the stuff. Abram's response is this, and this is where we see Abram growing in faith or exhibiting his growth in faith. He says, No, I have lifted my hands to the Lord, which is another way of saying I've made an oath with God. I've made an oath with God, the same God that Melchizedek is blessing and reminding me has blessed me that I will not take a thing from the wicked, from the king of wickedness. I won't be associated with the king of wickedness. I won't take anything that takes glory away from my God and gives glory to myself and another king. Abram doesn't want any blessing that comes his way to be associated with anybody but his God. So Abram denies the wicked king who's offering riches, and instead he receives the blessing from the king of righteousness, and in return he doesn't get anything, so he gives away a tenth of all he has. The invitation was to gain, and the the righteous response was to give for Abram. The reality is this. God has promised Abram the land of Canaan. Abram just proved on the battlefield that he could take that land by violence like that. Does Abram do that? No. He's proven he could take the land by violence, but instead, Abram chooses the way of righteousness. He chooses that God will provide the land in God's time for God's glory. A second reality is this. God has also promised Abram blessing. Abram is on in the king's valley with a king saying, why don't you be very rich and take everything from all five kingdoms and all the five, four kingdoms that just invaded, all that plunder, you can have it, Abram. You can have all that blessing. And really, what that king of Sodom is offering him is a place among kings. Why don't you come be a king like us and be wealthy beyond your wildest imagination? Abram does not take the bait. He chooses the way of righteousness. Yeah, I'll be blessed, but I will be blessed in God's time for God's glory, through God's provision. There is some foreshadowing going on here too. Back in Genesis 12, verse 12, God is making these promises to Abram and he says, I will bless anyone who blesses you and I will curse anyone, Abram, who dishonors you. Well, the king of wickedness, the king of Sodom, 
just dishonored Abram by offering this, him this plunder, right? Abram's response shows us that he was very dishonored. How dare you say, I've made an oath before God. How dare you offer me those riches, lest I be associated with your wickedness? Don't dishonor my name. My name will bring honor to Yahweh. I will not dishonor my name. I do not accept this dishonor. Well, God just said, I will curse those who dishonor me. In a few chapters now, we'll see what happens to Sodom and her king. But the king of righteousness blesses Abram, right? What does God do to Melchizedek in return? He has just blessed Abraham, and God has promised, I will bless those who bless you. Well, here's the blessing. The highest priesthood in time and space is the priesthood of Melchizedek. The high priest of all things is a priest in the order of Melchizedek. You think people remember his name? What a blessing. Jesus is a priest in the order of Melchizedek. God has blessed Melchizedek a billionfold. His name is associated in the priesthood that Jesus is the high priest of. What a blessing. Well, just like Abram, who was choice, making a choice between these two kings of wickedness and righteousness, Jesus in the, in the wilderness is tempted between the way of wickedness and the, and the way of righteousness, right? Like in the desert, Satan comes to Jesus and says, You can be a king. All authority I will give to you if you simply bow down and worship me, Satan. You could be a king. You can have everything. The same temptation that Abram's offered, but Jesus instead chooses the way of righteousness in the order that he is, and he does the Father's will. These are true choices for us, too. Like, the first thought that came to mind was, like, the thought of the little angel and the little devil on my shoulder, which feels cartoonish and tropey to me. But there's some reality in that trope, right? It's a trope for a reason that, that the reality is we are being offered choices between wickedness and righteousness, um, Here's an example. C.S. Lewis has a fantastic speech that's well worth your time. It's not long, and it's, you can either listen to it on YouTube or read the written version called The Inner Ring. Um, and The Inner Ring is all about how throughout life, in various organiz- organizations, there is often an unspoken and undefined inner circle. And to gain acceptance into this inner circle, it often begins with little bends towards things we, sh- we know we should not do. Not massive things, small things, small ways, small bitternesses, small lies, small gossips. Very small ways that we're tempted to choose the way of wickedness over righteousness. They end up snowballing into big things, right? Little decisions have major consequences. Many of us have found this out the hard way. For us, these small choices are all over the place. This moment is for Abram too. Hey, Here's what the kings do. We divide up people and things like chips on a poker table. Abram, come take all this stuff. Be a king. He's there. Abram won the battle. Shouldn't shouldn't I have that stuff? Didn't I I risk my life? Shouldn't, Shouldn't this stuff be mine? Abram doesn't take the bait. He doesn't take the bait. For us, the choices are the same. They might be small at first. I doubt you're being offered riches on a battlefield to be a king. But they're small, and they lead to significant changes in who we are and what our lives portray. Don't let acceptance force you to compromise what you know to be true. 
The way of righteousness is difficult, but worth it. Abram knew this. Do I want the promises of God realized now in my own way, on my own terms, or do I want to wait for God's promises? What or who are we, the people of God? <clears throat> Excuse me. What, are, what or who are we willing to associate with for gain? What kings will we try and be like? What goods will we accept to gain acceptance? Or are we willing to forego worldly riches, worldly pleasure, significance, comfort? Are we willing to forego acceptance and choose a different route for the sake of God's glory, his name and fame and the better way? Look, these are, this is a hard question to grapple with. I mean, because on the surface, it's, of course, I want to choose the way of righteousness. Of course. But you know those moments. I can think of a thousand moments where I have chosen the way of wickedness. It's, it's hard in the moment to choose the way of righteousness. But remember, we are like Lot in this story. We are the ones who camped too close to wickedness and possibly got in the whole city of wickedness. And now we're drowning in our own sin and we need someone, someone like Abram or better, someone like Jesus to come and pursue us and capture us and redeem us and restore us. For those who have been saved in Christ, we have a Holy Spirit who's been sent to now sanctify us, to make us like Jesus, who was perfect in choosing the way of righteousness and the glory of God. And for him, it was hard, we learn. But he was perfect in choosing the right path. And though we may fail, we may fail, we can do so resting in the fact that we have been saved and redeemed and restored. And it's from that place that we can work harder and harder and harder to walk the way of righteousness. Don't get that backwards ever as a Christian in our church. You never work to get salvation. You never work to be saved by Christ. He always comes and saves. But scripture tells us after we've been saved, what do we do? We go and sin no more. We grow in the image of Christ. We outdo one another in good works. We learn what it's like to be righteous. You will fail, but get back up. We have the power of God and the Holy Spirit to resist temptation and choose to do good. That means whatever you are struggling with, whatever sin whose city swallows you up or, or whatever sin swallows you like a pit of tar, remember you have the power of God and the Holy Spirit who has been sent to you to make you like Jesus, our King of Righteousness. And if you're thinking about your life now and you think, I've made compromises I've made compromises to, to be accepted by people I don't actually want to be accepted by. There is always time to change. That's what God is. He, he, he brings dead people to life. We were dead. Now we're alive. There is always more time. Don't think you're too lost. You're too far gone. The choices you have made have taken you too far down a road of wickedness or darkness with people you don't like, people who aren't like who you're trying to be. This isn't a self-help sermon. It's a Jesus helps sermon. <laughs> you can fight for it. There's more time. So we as a people, we fight for righteousness. We fight in community. We fight in Sunday. You showed up. That was a fight. We fight when we sing. We fight when we pray. We fight when we spend time in his word, although a thousand things call to us for our attention. When we say no to temptation, we fight. When we say yes to righteousness, we fight. We fight when we fail as in so much as we get back up and run into the arms of the Savior. And as we come to the table, 
we come like Abram, right? Abram feasted on bread and wine in the valley of kings on the field of victory. Do we come to the table for bread and wine on a field of defeat? I'm here to tell you, we, we feast on Christ's body and blood on the field of victory in the valley of kings. We don't belong. We're like Abram, like, why am I here? This is the valley of kings. There's kings here. The, the field of victory is under me. But, but the king of righteousness, Jesus, offers his bread and wine just like Melchizedek offered it to Abram. And just like Abram, we feast on the field of victory. We don't come to the table wondering how this might all turn out. We don't come to the table hoping that Jesus might win, hoping that if I sin again that he might find it in himself to forgive just one more time. We don't come that way. We come being told and remembering his words on the cross, it is finished. The battle is won. You in Christ have victory in Christ. Now, from that place of rest, from that place of salvation, we go and sin no more. Empowered by the Holy Spirit, grace when we fail, run back to the Savior a million times if you need to. But remember, we are on the land of victory. We share in a feast of victory, knowing that the cost was Christ's life, his death, his body, his blood, and his resurrection secures that victory on our behalf. Victory is assured by our king of righteousness, Jesus. In that we rest. In that we rest. Let's pray.